Welcome to the State of Men. I'm Aiden Dowling. And I'm Mike Watts. In today's episode, we have an amazing new guest, uh, Anu Gupta. Anu is a scientist, educator, lawyer, and the founder of Be More with Anu, a certified benefit corporation that trains professionals to break biases and advance DEI in their workplaces and communities. He's logged over 10,000 hours of meditation and developed Be More with Anu's science-backed, compassion-based approach after conducting decade-long research on the causes and solutions of racial and gender inequality. Having trained over 50,000 people, Anu's research was funded by the National Science Foundation, and his work has been featured in Fast Company, Newsweek, TED, and The Oprah Conversation. He obtained his JD from NYU Law and sits on the Bar Center for Buddhist Studies and the Middle Project Boards. Anu, thank you so much for coming on. We're really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for coming, Anu. So the very important question that Aiden and I were discussing before you hopped on is how do you say JD and what does it stand for? As we Googled you... it. <laughs> That's a good question. I didn't know that myself, but uh, JD stands for Juris Doctorate. So Juris being the Latin word for justice or, you know. So you're a justice doctor. <laughs> Well, there's so many of us in this country, right? They're pretty much why we're in a lot of troubles. <laughs> um, so I think a lot of our job is to prevent things from happening and then hold people accountable. Um, so you get a JD when you become a lawyer. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I have a, th I have a thing. I think lawyers only exist to talk to lawyers. I think that's like, that's my whole theory because it's like when lawyers write material, you're like, what, what am I reading? You know, like what I feel so dumb. When I read a document, even at election times, right? You go to the ballot and you read yeah. those three choices and the questions and it's manipulated so that it's like the, the way that the wording is done. I do not want to do this, but do you want to do this like thing? It's exactly. so weird. You know? It's very precise and it's definitely an art that takes, you know, that's why it's a three year degree. It really takes a while to get used to. And which is why a lot of us, when, when we go through law school, have such a hard time because we're like, wait, if we want to say this, why don't we just say it? Why do we have to couch it in these terms and in this language? But that's part of, you know, um, our system now. So, but I do think that lawyers, at least friends of mine, if I reflect on their lives, yeah, they do feel more comfortable around lawyers, but that's just an appearance that they put out. Um, overall, I think. Most lawyers, because they've worked so hard to be where they are, really care about, you know, these issues that we'll be talking about around equity and justice. It's just the way our industry is set up that it prevents them from actually expressing how they feel because we're so in our heads and we're trained to be in our heads mm -hmm. all the time. Wow. I see this with doctors too. It's like, <laughs> I'm talking to my buddy who's a uh, urologist <clears throat> and I'm, it, you know, it's Thursday afternoon or Thursday morning. And we're just, I'm, him and I are just chatting. This is a couple weeks ago. And he goes, oh yeah, I just did like a C-section and I had to go stitch it up and this. And I was like, I just finished eating like eggs. You know, I was like, <laughs> it's just like normal conversation of how there's a element of like emotions mm. are pulled out. And I think with mm. so much training and with, with all the training that goes through, because him and I had this long conversation about working 16 hours a day. You're working when you're exhausted and you're just, you're, it's like beat out of you to, to like rationalize things yeah. right, in this way. And has that affected you as, you know, going through law school to what you're doing now? Like, have you had to kind of repair some of that stuff? Like, or like, what's that difference been like for you? No, I think that's such an astute point and something I hadn't reflected on until you mentioned it. But yeah, it took me like a good three to four years just to undo the learning that I had been a part of during law school, not to lose what I learned, but to become a human again. So when I was in law school, particularly after my second year, and even a few years after when I was still practicing as a lawyer, I'd have friends and even family members say, it's so hard to talk to you. You know, like, who are you? Like, you always want to argue and want to be right. You know, I just don't enjoy talking to you anymore. And these are people that are, of course, non-lawyers or 
folks in the industry. And I was always like, wait, what do you mean? I'm just like proving a point. Like I'm right. So like always <laughs> being in that mindset of, and if you think about it, right, like we're trained to be in a courtroom. So right. always with that adversarial nature of you're trained to argue. Yeah. 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 So, but it took me a while to be like, Oh, like I can turn that off when I'm not practicing <laughs> the law. Mm. And that takes a while. And a lot of people never get there, unfortunately. Hmm. Especially in our society, if you think about everything that's happening, most of our Congress people, most of our, you know, local government leaders are lawyers. So they're basically always operating from a place of fight, flight and freeze. And, you know, even though they may win small victories, you know, internally, that has a huge toll emotionally, hmm. psychologically on their families and friends. So I think this is why we need a new paradigm, which is why I'm super excited about um, what you all are doing, particularly around, you know, who we are as men. I love it. I feel like there's a, you know, like one thing is this compassion piece, right? Mm -hmm. So is that what happened in those three years? Like you started to have compassion and recognizing that even if, even if you think you're right, like it doesn't always mean that you have to tell everyone that they're wrong, so to speak, and like have compassion for what they're going through. Is that, was that part of that journey in those yeah. three years? No, I think it's pretty much very critical. And it's even moving outside of, for me, these realms of wrong and right. You know, there's a mm -hmm. quote by Rumi, you know, you know, outside of ideas of right doing and wrongdoing, there's a field and I'll meet you there. And that was really tough for me because particularly as someone who deeply cares about you know, social change, you know, justice and equity. There's always a right way of doing things. But, you know, once you kind of let go of that stronghold in the mind of how things are supposed to be, you know, that's where like creativity and innovation really arises and comes from. And for me, particularly working in a field in a way that's completely apolitical, of course, I have what I believe in, but not attaching myself to any side has been really fascinating because it's allowed me to really begin to see how people, where people are struggling and suffering even, and how they all want to be doing this work, but they just don't have the words to do it because they feel so wounded by, you know, their past experiences. And that is the piece of compassion, right? Compassion is wanting to both feel how the other is feeling and wanting to help them, right? So that action piece is really important. Empathy is just, you know, oh, I feel you. Like when we say, oh, I feel you, I feel you, bro. Like that's empathy, mm -hmm. but it's like, oh, and how can I help? Not knowing it, but really at least extending that hand. Hey, I got you, tell me what to do. <laughs> Great. Mm. Has that been easy for you over time? I mean, yeah. I know you talked about, so like before law school, were you kind of more geared towards that way? It was taken away in law school, and then you've had to relearn that a little bit? Just compassion, this empathy part. Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think it's a yes and a no. I feel like even before law school, you know, just going through the education system, we're always trained to be valuing the left brain, you know, and I was always like a math and science kid. So, and, but I loved, you know, history and anthropology and that's what I ended up doing. But a part of me always had to justify pursuing the arts and pursuing kind of the humanities and social sciences um, to others. So I think that was, that conditioning was still there. And it was really hard after law school. And I was lucky because I discovered, um, you know, meditation and yoga and the right brain was what we did there all the time. And I would just see my left brain criticizing and critiquing it and making fun of it all the time. But there was like this internal battle going all the time. But every time I would succumb to what I was feeling, I would feel better. It's like, yeah, I know it's stupid. I know that I don't want to, you know, just even like saying something in a social setting, like a small little comment and just, I'm like, why do I have to say it? Whatever. It doesn't matter. But just after saying that, I feel like, oh, I feel better for some reason. I'm like, oh, it's because I'm a social animal and I want to be seen and I want to be heard. And these things are still important. And I have an ego. I'm not the Dalai Lama, you know, or whatever. I don't know if he still has an ego, but. <laughs> <laughs> he 
He probably does. <laughs> I'm sure yeah, he does. I'm going to say yes. <laughs> it's interesting because it sounds like a lot of what a lot of men struggle with, right? Which is this concept of, you know, oh, they want to do yoga or they want to meditate. And then they have this, uh, this other part of themselves that maybe has been trained by society or how they've grown up. That's just like, you do yoga, bro. Like, okay, you're going to meditate. Like, where are you, like, you know, like, what are you, the Dalai Lama? Like, right. Like yeah. kind of using that critical, uh, kind of poking fun at the expressive part of ourselves. Yeah. Um, and then when we see our friends doing it, we kind of poke fun at them. Um, because I mean, my first thought is like, cause maybe we also want to do it, but there's this like demasculinization of being, like you said, like, you're a social being and like you want people like you want to connect with people on more than just a, a business level or a, a physical level maybe through sports or or you know something like that yeah. and just like connect in that real intimate way yeah and you know it's so interesting what you said because there's been so many studies done around this that you know as we grow older as men particularly if you know we end up having a partner or getting married most of our friends as men end up being friends of our spouses like, or partners of our spouses, particularly if we're, you know, cis straight men or uh, trans straight mm -hmm. men, just men who are attracted to the opposite sex. And that's really interesting. We don't really actually have our own community of people. And then I was like, oh, this can't be true. But then I started thinking about my father and my uncles and, you know, um, other members of my family and other close friends. I'm like, oh, wow, like, yeah, they're always hanging out with their wives, you know, husbands or partners, and they have their own thing, which is awesome. But I'm like, oh, this is interesting because, you know, we as men, and that's the theory that we haven't been socialized to really build those social connections, that intimacy. And if this is, again, it's a bell curve. It's not like everybody's like this. We're all like at different points of this bell curve. But a lot of that has to do with, you know, our inability to, or it's not that our inability, it's more like we've been trained to not share and to suppress mm -hmm. a lot. <laughs> you know? I could see that. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> most of my, I like to think that when I think about the men in my life and myself, it's like, yeah, mostly friends, partner, like they're partners, friends, partners, Yeah. Um, whether they're, you know, however they uh, identify and then and or it's like the friends you made in college yeah. and now you're 34 and it's been 12 years and you don't have any real like new friends, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, or it's a friend directly correlated with something like they do jujitsu and they're like, yeah. oh, yeah, you know, Jamal from jujitsu. Exactly. And it's like that's the only time they see them. That's how they connect. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely it's interesting to know that there's actually studies that are saying like this is real. Um, yeah definitely something that is like a interesting to to hear about and makes me want to like uh look into that some more you know yeah and it's also like goes down into the nature of masculinity itself because and it's not that there was this one person this evil guy who created this to like have us all be trapped in our bodies and this thing called masculinity it's really like conditioning over like decades and decades and decades and it's part of our social systems but a lot of who we are and how we see ourselves is, is is in opposition to how you know we define femininity and being a woman and a lot of how you know for me this has been the journey of the last couple of years you know my work has been for the first several years i was working on issues of women's rights for sure starting in law school international women's rights um and i started looking at my gender stuff but I was really focused on like ethnicity and race until, you know, a few years ago um, when it just kept on coming up, particularly in my relationships with, you know, you know, women in my life, my sisters, my mother. Um, and I was like, oh, wait, like, what is going on here? There's something deeper here. And that's where I was like, oh, why? there's always this need to feel better than. I'll give you a classic example. Like you wanted to feel better than them. Yeah. Is that yeah. correct? The okay. sense of like, I not just feel better, like a sense within me that I am better. I am better. Got it. So I'll give you a classic example. So my family's Indian. We immigrated here. I have two sisters. 
And, you know, growing up in Indian culture and the surroundings I was in, you're always told that as a boy, you're like somehow special or better than. And my mother and my parents, actually both my parents, never actually discriminated between the three of us. And it's interesting, like six or seven years ago, I started really questioning that piece because inside of me, it's like, oh, I'm still a boy, so I'm better than or somehow more entitled than my sisters. And, you know, when I started this practice of really understanding the nature of masculinity within myself, I was like, oh my gosh, I really do believe that. And I was so resentful. Like, I would like talk about it, you know, in my therapist's office. I would talk about it with my friends, even with whom I have this type of intimacy. For hours, like little things that my parents or, you know, my guardians had done as kids where they treated my sisters better or they gave them more, they got more presents than I did. And it was like an accumulation of stuff. I'm like, what is this about? Like, I don't get it. Why? And it was, that's it. This thing that, oh no, I deserve better because I'm a man, right? I'm a boy and there are girls and everybody told me that I'm better. So why, why is this not happening? Right? And that is so critical. And I've talked about it with my sisters too. And they had, they had it the other way because they too were, they were like, no, I'm just as good. And they remembered all the times where I got special treatment because I was a boy. <laughs> and for them, the journey has been, I'm just as good. Right. And for me, it's like, oh no, I'm better. Mm. I don't know yeah. how that, it, does that resonate with no, you guys? No. <laughs> I mean, for, for me particularly, cause having been, you know, assigned female at birth. Yeah. One of the things that I always got pushback from society was me saying like, if a boy can do it, so can I. Yeah. Right. So that was always a pushback I would get. Cause it would be like, Oh, this little girl's trying to do this stuff. You can't like, don't do that. That's for the boys. So, mm -hmm. and then when I transitioned, there's this narrative that a lot of trans men say, and I too caught myself in it and now have realized the, what was wrong with that statement. But it's this concept of we say like, well, I just want people to see me for like the man that I am. I want them to, a lot of times they say, I just want them to respect the man I am. Yeah. And it's like, if we treated men and women the same, then there would be no difference in the respect. It would just be your pronouns your and your name and not like telling you, you can't use a men's room. Yeah. And so it was exactly what you just said anew, which is like, we thought that by transitioning into men, now we are better than mm. now we are the better of the two. Um, and you should, you should respect and treat me yeah. as you treat other men, which is the better. So it's really yeah. interesting. You said that, cause I always knew that, but you kind of just put it in some, in some language, um, and story that makes me connect, uh, even more with that. And yeah, I mean, I I said that so many trans men still say that, and it's mm. like I know what they're trying to say, but there is what you're saying that that bit of like, well, I'm a man and I'm I'm better than these girls, like you know what I mean. So treat me like that. And it's also we're trained to feel that way. Like think of like, I mean, I started seeing it in the songs I listen to, in the movies I watch, and the TV shows I watch. You know where, you know, women would be portraying or singing where they would actually elevate men in a way that I'm gonna take care of you, you bet you're you're the man, you're gonna take care of me, you're gonna do all this stuff for mm -hmm. me. And then we start kind of I mean, at least for me, it was like, oh yeah, like at a very unconscious level, I'm like buying into that story and buying into that narrative. And of course I'm I don't know, I'm not a I'm not female body, so I don't know, but how that's resonating with, you know, women who are listening too. And it's kind of mm -hmm. siphoning us into this what I call gender is also a caste hierarchy, right? There's a dominant group and a sub subordinate group. And that's where we are in that binary. And then folks that don't fit that binary, well, they're the outcasts. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, there's a massive distraction ha happening over here right now. Apologize. Um, and you might hear some background noise for people listening. But it's to answer your question, it's like it's... I have started to realize... I think because, you know, Kate and I built a company that was mainly for women entrepreneurs over the last decade. And just listening to their stories, I'd be like, well, why aren't they just, just go do it, you know, or just go do that? Like, what is the problem? Like, I didn't understand how kind of unconsciously programmed I was in this way, where it's like, you just walk into a room and I expect everything to just flow towards me. 
mm-hmm. right? And it's just, it's like, no, that doesn't actually exist for everyone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just, and then the, the, of like certain people can do this and this country or another country and other people can't do this. And just watching how the world revolves and works. It was a big, um, yeah, it was a big, I, it's been a big eye opening experience for me. And then having two girls now raising two girls, I'm just like, okay, mm. what do I do that? Like, how do I, yeah. I don't even teach, but it's just, it's just like been a thing to think about. It's like, how did they get that as well and not be stifled in that way? Are you seeing that show up in their lives at all? Um, not really. Not at this point. Mm-hmm. I think you mean just like boys get this or girls get this type yeah. thing. No, I I see more of it how what I see a lot in watching them is how they interact. Like mm-hmm. boys are so rough. You know, there was a kid that was six years old in the pool this weekend that punched me in the face. You know, and I was like, excuse me? I almost, like, I almost projected a six-year-old. Like, oh I had to God. leave the pool because I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, like, attack this child. You know, like, oh my he gosh. would not leave me alone. And I'm just r- going around the pool with Penelope or Ruby. You know, I had a three-year-old I'm, like, hanging out in the pool with. And the six-year-old kid is just keeps coming up, keeps coming up, keeps coming up, uh, boom, boom, over and over and over again. I'm like, where's this child's parent, you know? Yeah. And so... From there, I think the physicality is the thing I noticed the big difference around. Mm -hmm. It's like my kids like to wrestle, but it's very small amount. It's like they'll just jump on me once and they'll be okay, bye. But I think with what I notice with hanging out with a group of with we have boys over and stuff to play, Mm -hmm. it's just it's con. It could go for an hour. Like I want to wrestle for an hour. That's the biggest thing I notice now. I think they also go to a school though that is very. It tre- it's like there will you're not separating yourself in this community like we're all one and it's about love like the philosophy is love and happiness and it's much different than mm-hmm. and they're only six right they're six and three so i don't know if that'll change as it gets older you know it's something to watch so that's what i'm seeing now yeah it's really interesting and you know the science around this is so it's so unclear because we don't know if it's nature or nurture I think it's both probably, right? I think it's, it's both. the middle road, middle yeah. road. But I do think that for a lot of boys in our society, young boys, you know, we're like sponges. Of course, we think about the five senses, but every little thing they're observing energetically in the spaces they're in. And I think for young boys, there's a lot of pressures to conform, to be like men. And with, to be like men is trained, the training is to not be like women. To not be like yeah. girls. As if that's like the worst thing that could happen to you. You know, and that's, it's, yeah. that's the challenge. It's to follow up with the kid that was hitting me in the pool. Mm-hmm. I finally, like I when I stepped away from it to answer you, this kind of goes back to answer your previous question. But when I left that environment, I was like, I need to separate myself from this situation right now and just call my body back down. And I'm sitting out on this dock because we were at somebody's house and they had like a boat dock outside. And then this guy comes up and he's like, Hey, what's up? And I'm like, yo, what's up? And he was like getting on, it was his boat. And then this kid comes out and gets on the boat. I was like, Oh, that's his dad. And his, his dad is telling a story to this other guy that was there about seeing sharks. And he's like, you weren't scared, bud, were you? And I was like, Oh, now I see where all of this exactly. is coming from. It's just like that one sentence. Yeah. You weren't scared. Were you about those sharks, bud? No, I don't think so. He didn't even answer. And he's like, nah, I didn't think yeah. so. I was like, okay, now I see why the six year old kid is punching me in the pool. And he's trying to impress his dad over and over again. And the worst thing you could do to that kid is call him a girl or be like, you punch like a girl. And that, he will lose his mind. And why is that? You just said something. It doesn't have to be true. But this is what triggers us so much to be compared to girls. And this is kind of the root of masculinity, which is about, or what people call toxic masculinity, which is about domination, which is about being better than. And, you know, I see it in myself. And, um, but I also see it in people who are not men, right? It's in all mm-hmm. of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about how the world, like when it comes to men in this call out culture, that's happened in the past couple of years with the me too movement and putting these, you know, cause it's, is this helpful? Like, is the re I don't know if there's research around this. Like, is this, mm-hmm. a? 
I know it's creating more awareness for people, you know, for men to be like, oh, what, what was my behavior been like? But is this a thing to be, okay, everything's toxic masculinity now? Because I feel like what has been labeled as toxic masculinity can just be like, it's like so easy to just yeah. assign everything to that term. I agree. And it's so challenging. It's very much like in the racial equity, racial justice field, like everything is white supremacy that it's like, well, what can, what isn't like, I don't know. Right. <laughs> right. So right. When we're defining things by um, what not to do versus what to do, it's just like unhelpful. I think it's both. And it's not for me, there's no either or um, it's a helpful because for the first time in probably human history, so many women and other people who've been assaulted or harassed or harmed by men and men's actions have come out to really, you know, say this was happening. But it feels like to me, kind of like the witch hunts, like mm. it's become like a big public forum where we throw all this shame at people and basically cancel their humanity. That's what cancel culture is about. And I feel like, again, I don't have any science behind it, but the feeling I get around that is that that is not helpful, you know? So yeah. that's one way of looking at it. The other way is, I think the most fascinating thing, we're still focusing on the victims, we're focusing on the women and what they're doing, what they've done, and how they're like owning what's happened to them. But I'm more interested in the men. Like, why did they do that? Like, why did they do mm -hmm. that? You know, what's mm -hmm. going on for them? So, of course, they apologize, they release their statements, they go to rehab or whatever else. But we haven't heard from them. Mm -mm. I want to know their journey because that's where the real transformation and change is going to come from. So, for me, like one classic example is, I don't know if you remember a few years ago, Aziz and Sari got, you mm -hmm. know, accused of sexual harassment on a date. And it was... It was like one of those slippery slope situations, right? So there was no like clear answer, but he continued to deny it. And it cost him probably tens of millions of dollars, his career, his brand, his reputation. But I was like, what about this situation is so important to him that he can't just come out, you know, in a public forum and be like, I am so sorry that happened. That was not my intention. And but I could see how it could be so harmful and let me repair this harm to you. Let's talk about it. So the millions of dollars he lost, he could have then, well, of course, given it to this person, but also to various charities and become the next spokesperson for, mm -hmm. you know, gender equity and gen transformation of gender relations in general. But for me, I'm like, why did he not do that? What stopped him from doing that? And like, it was so simple. Like he mm -hmm. would be like literally the poster child, you know, if he did, if he played his cards right. And I'm like, this is what we need more men to do, but more and more men don't do it. Look at the former governor of New York. Like mm -hmm. what's going on? And this is, this is what I'm talking. This is, I feel like that is the extent of toxic masculinity. Not all the things that people define, but it's like, mm that unwillingness to take responsibility for our actions. And that is actually a very, um, what's the opposite of noble? Ill noble? Coward? Like a <laughs> cowardly coward. Cowardly thing to do, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So as a human being, I don't know, how does that sit with you guys? It makes, because just the example you just used, and I'm just like, all the examples are replaying through my head now. It's like, they just disappear. And it's like, that's not actually, I don't think I've ever really, maybe I've thought about this a little bit, but it's not. So now what you're, you just, let's say canceled. Right. And then you just disappear. It's like, where do you go? What do you do? How are you handling it? Right. right? Instead of mm -hmm. addressing it. Cause you are in a public forum for that place. And then right. why do we allow it to just, and it just keeps Ooh. repeating itself. It's similar to the jail and prison system we have, uh, true. right? Yes. We are just saying you did something bad um, and we're going to remove you from everyone who has a, an influence on you, whether that's good or bad. And we're going to stick you in, you know, 
jail or send you to prison for this many years and then you come out and where has the learning where has the um revitalization of that human and their compassion and dealing with the things going on with them and that's you know because for that person who abused or did wrong to these women the most influent like they need their friends and all of their friends are saying, I'm not talking to you anymore because you did this terrible thing. Right. And now they're left alone. And now they're like, is there change? Probably not. No. Probably just shame. Yeah. Yeah. And the research, I mean, particularly on the prison system is super clear. You know, there's, there's this thing known as recidivism, which is basically someone who's been to prison and they come out. And prison actually makes them worse and more likely to commit a crime. Hmm. Um, and this is kind of the nature of how, I guess, at this, at the structural level, our country has been designed and our world is being designed, you know, it's really about punishment and this idea of right and wrong. And I feel like the transformation we're beginning to see, um, is one where instead of punishment, we need to really center ourselves on compassion and understanding and love. Mm. And what does that look like? We don't know. (laughs) Right. If we knew, we would have done it. So we actually have to experiment. We have some models mm-hmm. out there, you know, you know, the Maori people in New Zealand have ways of creating, you know, accountability circles. So there are other things that have happened, but not in this very industrialized, you know, postmodern S- way system yet. <laughs> that we exist. Mm-hmm. I feel like Brene Brown did all the research on shame work and then her book yeah. came out and then everybody, now we just shame everybody because it's like <laughs> she made it popular about shame terms. So now we just go shame everyone. But the weird thing is we are not applying her research. No, we're not. Basically, no, 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 if we were to prescribe all. her research, we would do exactly the opposite of what's happening <laughs> yeah, that's in our what I mean. right now. She said, excuse me. She was just like, here's what, here's what, how not to shame people. So let's just go shame everybody because that is the opposite. It's It's wild. Lead with vulnerability, right? When she says, so it's like, oh, like that's what I want for Maziz from the former governor. That's what I want from these guys. Um, But that's not what we're seeing. No. And I think it's hard to, it's hard to love someone who's done or show compassion to someone who's done harm to you. Mm-hmm. Not that it's the responsibility of the victim or the person who is has overcome that struggle to be the one who provides that compassion, but it's like in, in a in a situation where there's any type of abuse, it's like the the abused and the abuser need compassion, they need to be listened to, and they need to be revitalized just in very different ways, right? right? Um, their spirit and power. And it's hard, it's, it's hard to think like, oh, this person, you know, who, you know, uh, did something that they shouldn't have done to this person, um, you know, especially in a sexual manner. It's like, how how do you, who's going to be the person who's like, I'm going to go give that guy a hug. It's like, what? (laughs) Don't you hear what he did? You know, but it's, it's, and it's hard and it's tricky. And I think that, that's where I think a lot of the failure is, is because you don't, yeah. How do you, how do you give forgiveness or compassion to someone who's done harm to other people? It's just. Yeah. Like, you know, I think of Brian Stevenson when he says, you know, he wrote his book, Just Mercy, where he talks about, mm. you know, you know, if someone commits a murder, they're not just a murderer. If someone steals, they're not just a thief. There's so much more to their humanity. And if we just stick to that one piece of what they did, it both prevents us from really moving towards our own freedom and liberation and our ways to really be with one another because we're siloing them in. But it also prevents them from beginning to cultivate other aspects of who they are as a human being. And... I think it's a both and when it comes to compassion and forgiveness. I think there has to be an invitation made from people who have been harmed, but they can't make that invitation until they've really done some healing work internally to even come to a place to be like, oh, the harm that was done to me, I have addressed it. And oftentimes in our culture, we're we're looking for external validation. You know, we're like, okay, I was harmed in this way, this person did something racist to me, 
And I want you all to acknowledge it. And I want him or her to like apologize for it. But that, that, does that really heal the harm that was done? You know, because the harm kind of continues until we address it. And for me, like having been through that healing process myself, I was like, oh yeah, like people have acknowledged it. They have apologized. Yet I still feel like, Ugh, you know, about it. Like the wound is still there, the emotional wound, the psychic wound. And like, oh, because I have to heal it. No person outside of me can actually come and like do it. Um, and that's, I think, the new terrain that we really have to enter because in our system, particularly in our legal system, we basically sue someone and make a lot of money if we win. And that's supposed to be like compensation. But can any amount of money, you know, compensate for the trauma of, you know, rape or, you know, sexual harassment and all these other awful things? I mean, to me, no, right? Because <laughs> it's such a violation of one's, you know, dignity, integrity, one's sense of being. Um, but again, that is like a really different way to approach these challenges. Um, but I do think that is the paradigm that we're moving towards um, in many ways, or we need to move towards. I, th I think I, this conversation, I think back to that six-year-old since we've been talking about that this weekend yeah. and just like how, I think what you just talked about Aiden too, it's like, Oh, how could I have handled that differently? Right. Cause I'm the 39 year grown up and this kid's six and he's not, getting fulfilled with something at home. And so he took, you know, it's like, did I just, it's like, I kept that cycle going in the pool, like in that way. Right. So I was like, okay, what are the things I could do differently the next time that that situation might happen? Mm -hmm. You know, cause it just kept going with how, what was happening there. I think that's a, I don't know. I just was thinking about that as you were sharing regarding like, how can we fix it? And I was like, that's something I just thought of now. Well, like what happened in your body at the moment when he was doing it? Right. It's like frustration and anger starting yeah. to build up. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to take all of this rage onto the six-year-old kid. Which you didn't, and, right? So you were able no, to see obviously, it. No, obviously, right? Yeah. But, because he wasn't well, like, yeah, so I <laughs> left, right? It's like, he wasn't terrified, right? He wasn't, there was no fear in his face. Sure. But with him, I noticed there was like a switch that happened where I think that, it's like that anger and terrified he was taking it out on me. Right. Right. But in my body, I was like, okay, this is raging up. And then I would go play with Ruby and all calm down. Right. And then I, this kid right. would come back and be like, get away, you know? And so, yeah, but I think that's the place to be like, wow, this is really significant. Yeah. Because I think, I mean, I don't know. Cause I wasn't there, but yeah. my hypothesis would be that whatever he was doing, then you, you know, your body was activated, your nervous system was activated, and you weren't seeing him for who he was, a six-year-old kid, but something else. Right. So I think what anyone can do in those situations is to really attend to what gets triggered in our bodies and really yeah. take care of ourselves first. And then if there's capacity, again, that's a big if, um, be curious. Be like, yep. hey there, what's your name? This Why do you good. want to beat me up? What's going on for you? Tell a me therapy more. therapy session. Thanks. Yeah, Thanks literally. Yeah. All yeah. of us really need therapy sessions right now. <laughs> Coming out of this global pandemic and so many other, so many other things. We're just pent up emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> have you watched The Morning Show on uh, Apple TV? I have not, no. So uh, they do a... It's a very interesting show for a variety of reasons, but mm -hmm. you know, it's just like one of the main characters kind of was in this cancel, very similar to what this description we're talking about today. Yeah. And they show, I thought was really great about his story, like what you're talking about. It's like, where did he go? Right. I don't want to give too much away if people are going to watch it, but just the dialogue of what took place throughout it and how, what this person did affected everyone else around him. Yeah. And it's like, we're watching the corrupt system fall down in a way and we're trying yeah. to hold it up, but also rebuild it in a way that's not affected by such a negative experience. Um, yeah. Like I, I think it's, so I think about. We're talking about the American context, but with what happened to the tennis player Peng in China, right? She's yes. just disappeared. And yeah. it's happening more and more. And China is like a communist autocratic country. I get it. But I'm like, wait, you could be Chinese and autocratic and that's fine. But don't you want to uphold to these values you live up to, which is equality between the sexes? And if one of your guys 
is misbehaving, wouldn't you want to like send them to prison so more people would become like party members? Like right. you're just like alienating your audience over and over again. And that's where I'm like, oh, this is not about ideology. This is not about ethics. This is really about domination and masculinity. Right? Because is Jack Mal still, is he still disappear? Is he still hiding? I think so. Yeah. Like all these folks. And I'm like, and it's just why, you know, like if you really want to be like, oh, the Communist Party of China is like the thing, then it needs to live in integrity so people can actually believe in it. Mm. So your research, Aiden, do you have any question? I'm going to just switch gear for a second. No. Okay. Do it up. So is it getting better? <laughs> it's like, I, you know, it's like, what's your take on things that you've seen in the past? Like, are we, I know we're exposing people to more things. So I think from that perspective, but like we're moving, cause you stated this when you're on the Kate and Mike show, originally you talked about how we're living more in silos and mm -hmm. it was like 66% of the U S like us as humans would have to move to create yeah. like a more diverse environment to be around. Yeah. So is it a place that we're going from kind of things that were more diverse to it's more siloed and, or not, you know, what's that look like for you? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. Like two thirds of Americans, we live in a hyper segregated society basically. So when it comes to race, so two thirds of us live with and around people that are like us probably not the three of us because all of us live in urban environments like um but most americans do in maine it was for me in yeah. miami it's not yeah <laughs> yeah oregon too when i was in oregon it was very segregated like in that, that. Yeah. yeah yeah um but your question was like is it getting better well the, it's i don't know if folks would like this response but it depends on us the choices we make now so I think right now, the time we're in, I see it as a really important time because there is massive levels of awareness around these challenges. Uh, people know that this is a reality, that there is this thing known as, you know, racial disparities. And um, it's you know been set up. It's a caste system similarly around gender and other forms of human identity. So awareness is there. But now how do we use this awareness to advance change? Right. For me, the, you know, I don't want to, I don't think there's a doomsday scenario, but if we continue at the rate we're going at, you know, with climate change and all these challenges, we're really moving towards a place where Nazi Germany was a hundred years ago. And this is not a doomsday scenario in any way. It's just how history is repeating itself. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a hundred years ago or in the 1920s, it was like a beautiful time with the arts in Germany and Berlin, you know, with openness and solidarity. Um, yet politically and economically, it was a pretty difficult time because it was known as the Weimar Republic. And that was how the Nazis came into power. So because the, the vast majority of the population wasn't even responding to what was happening, it went in that direction. Mm -hmm. So where we find ourselves in America is very similar in that way. Um, so it's really going to be up to us. And I think a lot of folks are doing that work of organizing of being in communication. My only, only advice, I don't know. I don't feel like I can give advice. Like I don't, who am I, but if I were to, is like, we have to work with compassion. We have to work in a place that keeps shame at bay. We have to be more inclusive and invite people in. Because I feel like what's happening is we're going deeper and deeper into our silos. Um, and that is basically going to trigger the nervous systems of people on the other end and to further the divide, you know, the fight, flight, freeze response. And that's deeply in our bodies, right? Um, yeah. And how does this, like, as men, right? Like, what does this look like from us as because it's like I operate in the school we go that we the kid that Penelope goes to is extremely active with activities, but it's mainly the moms, right? Are like organizing it. They they're paying attention to all of it. So it's like I know there's a role for men like creating this change, and maybe it's like, what does that look like for us that we have not done in the past? Well, I think it's all about men. 
When it comes to the gender caste hierarchy, we are the ones who are in the place of dominant group. And even people who are not men, women and non-binary people who find themselves in positions of power, they talk, they take on masculine identities, they take on masculine attributes. So it's really about masculinity across the board. Um, but the question you asked is really interesting because there's several things, right? You're just one person. I'm just one person. There's mm -hmm. only so much we can do. We can't change patriarchy. <laughs> we can't change, you know, how masculinity operates. So I think for us as individuals, the work, the, the most, I think the most important liberatory work we can do is really lead by example and undo, you know, these, the way these systems play out in our own bodies and in our own minds and catch ourselves like you did with the six-year-old kid. Like you're catching yourself like, oh my God, like I noticed that. And the only thing I could do in that moment was disengage. Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of men are doing that. And this is again about consciousness shift and behavior shift over time. So I think as individuals, that was, that's what we, we have to do. And I think for men is to really become in touch with our feelings um, and to really begin to process all the ways we've, um, we've been told to, or there was no space for us. Like there's so many reasons and it's not our fault. Like beginning there, it's not our fault that we are the way we are. And of course, there's some responsibility that we can take, but we don't have to choose to go down that route anyway, anymore. So I think that's the individual one. And then beyond that, it's really up to people that, who are men in positions of power, who have platforms, to then begin to bring that sense of self-awareness and compassion and understanding into the organizations they lead, into the teams they're a part of. Um, and they can do that in so many ways. Um, that doesn't have to be, you know, in any way compromising the bottom line or compromising performance. But, you know, it's, it's going to be really leading from our hearts, as Brene Brown says. And I feel like the more people do that individually, the more, you know, we'll begin to see behavior shift, you know. And that's basically how um, change happens, you know, at a local, national or global, you know, scale. Um, Fear is infectious, but so mm -hmm. is joy. You know, um, hatred is infectious, as we've seen, but so is love and compassion. But it's really up to us to choose one of those two directions. Yeah, fear and greed and all that stuff has a better marketing yeah. plan behind it right now than love and compassion. Yeah, well, the two of you have a great marketing plan around, you know, love and compassion and understanding. So I feel like there's something going on here too. <laughs> yeah. I think the money, right? It's the dollars, like where we spend, yeah. especially in the big companies, like where they're spending. Cause you look at the news, you know, it's like every day it's all about death and destruction and it like gets those clicks. So I feel like as we change it. Um, yeah. Well, you know, there's two, um, there's two magazines that I could recommend and I would encourage folks listening to subscribe to them because they're both nonprofit and they're doing the good work of, you know, sharing and spreading positive news. One is the sun magazine. So it's ad free and really sharing beautiful stories. I've been a subscriber for over 10 years. And the other is mm. yes magazine based out of Seattle and the sun is based out of North Carolina, but really profiling stories of change and inspiration and how the human heart has really gone through, um, the challenges of our time. <laughs> Check those out. Aiden, do you have any? Well, I think one thing I was I, like, one question I have is in your opinion, like, why do you think that we are? So, so I know that some of it, like, why do you think we're going into these like silos, right? Of like, Oh, only being around the people that are just like us, um, as opposed to like taking, like peaking interest of like something you're not, you don't know about. And you're, cause it's like, when I look at TV, people love to watch shows of things that really have nothing to do with their everyday life. And they're very engaged and they're watching hours and hours of like a show, like a, a, you know, just think of like NCIS. It's like no one is at all doing anything like this. This is not happening in their life. They don't live in Miami or, or like, you know, Hawaii or wherever it's taking place, but they're obsessed. Mm. And it's because it's so different from them. Yet when we meet individuals who are so different from us, 
we tend to respond in a different way with a lack of the same curiosity we have mm. for this character that has mm. no, what you what wouldn't even really be your friend in real life, so to speak. So do you have like any thoughts on that? Yes, this is like, <laughs> this is literally the foundation of my work. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is like uh, an advertising plug for me and my work. It's great. <laughs> um, so I think I want to kind of start with the NCIS and others, the TV in general. Um, why are people spending so much time on there? So from an emotional perspective, from a human behavioral perspective, it's an escape. Mm -hmm. People are escaping from their day-to-day -day life because escaping in that way feels good because they don't have to face the truth of the challenges they face, you know, in their day-to-day -day lives, the pain, the suffering. Um, but that's not sustainable, right? Because once that show is done, we watch the entire season, we have to turn the TV off and then go back to our lives, right? So all of those pains that we basically kind of withstood for a little while to come back. Um, and then this really goes to the initial question you said that why are we in silos like what's going on there um you know when we know that we want actually to actively engage with the opposing side and this is fear there's no other explanation you know fear is the primal emotion that's really leading that fear of not knowing fear of uncertainty and oftentimes believing the stories of the other fear of the other you know in the work that i've done you know particularly in white communities in this country the amount of fear that, you know, white people carry in their bodies around um, what black people are like or what, you know, Muslims are like is a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, have you met anybody who is a Muslim or who practices that religion? Have you met anybody who's African-American? Yeah, yeah, that guy, the truck driver or the coffee. But like, no, 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 no. Have you actually been friends with someone who represents those communities? Have you had them over, you know, pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. of course? Have you listened to their stories? Um, it's like, oh, no, right? That's where it's like, oh, have you invited them to your kids' birthday parties? And believe? And that's where I'm like, oh, we don't know one another. And I think for me, what's needed to do this is really exactly what you said, Aiden, is to begin to build these new competencies, things like curiosity, compassion, um, well-being, you know, collective identity, um, and a few, you know, and others, optimism. And these are things that we can now measure because science has advanced to that level. Um, and we can actually cultivate them. And that's basically my work around helping people break bias is to really build these competencies. Um, so we can, again, begin to build a shared future that works for everyone, right? Um, not just... And it doesn't, it's no longer feeds that part of us that's fearful. And when that fear comes up, we have the skills to manage it and to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, it's been great. I just have one final question. We talked mm -hmm. a little bit about it. Do you have time to answer yeah, one yeah. final question? Okay. Let's do it. So like see the critical race theory, you and I yeah. were having a discussion you know, a month ago or so when we were hopping on and you were talking about, because I, I don't really understand what that means, mm -hmm. you know, but you hear it now that critical race theory is being banned in schools and what this is. So can you explain, cause I, you said you took a class from the person that create came up with the term, I believe. Mm -hmm. Right. So can you explain, is it like, what are, what is happening here? What's going on? Well, this is fear and action. Like, back to Aiden's you know, point earlier, this is literally projecting all the fears that these lawmakers have that they can feed off of onto something that does not even come close to what they're talking about. So to describe what critical race theory is, keyword here, theory. <laughs> it's not a law, it's not like gravity, uh, it's a theory that one person came up with, right? And it was basically for legal academics. What does that mean? These are, you know, basically intellectuals who teach and study the law. That's it, right? So it's in like the corner of like a very, very prestigious ivory tower. And basically, there may be like a total of 500 people in the world <laughs> who study this stuff, you know? So it's a very small number of people. 
But what they're doing is really interrogating the foundations of, you know, American government using the lens of race. And, you know, as people who like to think, they have the right to do that. And I learned from them and I learned a lot from them. You know, I was part of that class and it actually was one of the reasons why I'm doing the work that I'm doing around breaking racial bias. And it doesn't say any of the things that people have projected it to mean. You know, basically it says that, yeah, like when the country was founded, black people were three-fifths of a human. Is that a lie? I mean, it's in the Constitution, <laughs> you know? So it's not like anything that's like super, you know, something out there. So part of it is that. What I will say is, for me, the work that I do has always been a challenge to critical race theory because one of the things that it does say, um, which there's reason for, again, this is a theory and people are building their argument, is that racism in our society is permanent. And the reason why they say that is because um, the theorists, many of whom are white themselves, are saying that white communities as a whole will continue to come together to oppress other people of color, known as interest convergence. Now, what's happening in our country is actually proving that critical race theory, the theory is correct, because that's mm. what we're seeing in our country, mm. which is the sad part for me, because like my work has been like, oh no, like anything else in the world, racism too is impermanent. It's gonna change, mm. nothing is permanent, right? Our lives are impermanent, you know, the people we love will pass at some point, right? So we have to remember that. Um, but I think what's happening right now is actually they're proving <laughs> the theory right a little bit. And that's kind of the sad part for me. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that was helpful in really thinking about this approach. Yeah, I think that explains a little bit. And the fear of being, because it's like being banned in school to be taught. It right? was never being taught in school. Like, I didn't know. So you took my course, Mike. Did you know that race was a story that was came, someone came up with this story like 200 years ago? Like, not did you know I, how it came up? Most, not until I took your course. Exactly. Like this stuff right. is not being taught in school. So like right. the fact that they're banning it is just a superfluous, wasteful time and energy of our governments and our, <laughs> and our taxpayer monies. When, it's a distraction because we have so many other things that we need to be addressing. But once again, our... This is what riles people up. It feeds yep. the fear, feeds, it feeds the separation that we feel from one another instead of really bringing us together. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Well, you know, we'll end there. I feel like so much stuff is yeah. a distraction, you know, of like what, like it, we're never getting to the root cause of the problem because we're always distracted by all these little shiny things, you know. Which is, last plug, that's, that's why I feel like in our century, mindfulness is so important to be able to mm. preserve and conserve our mind. And that's basically the tools I teach. It's about mm. training people to observe their minds and be able to basically get a hold of their mind so it doesn't get distracted by everything. And there mm. is so much research behind the need for this in this century. Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote Sapiens and is kind of a scientist around this stuff and historian around this. And he says meditation is one of the 21 tools we need as every human being in the 21st century. So, and for me, that was the tool that helped me save my life, that helped me really build this company and to really be able to look at these challenges that we confront on a day-to-day -day basis without that place of reactivity, you know? It's beautiful. And new plug away, like where can people find you? Where can they get these courses? Can they work with you one-on-one? -on -one? Like, uh, give us the lowdown. Yeah, all of the above. So just go to bemorewithanew.com and there are a bunch of courses there. We actually have a free four-day DEI challenge called the Be More DEI Challenge, where people can begin to really learn about what diversity, equity, and inclusion is, why it's really important in the 21st century, and the tools that they can put into practice right away to begin to address it. We have a bunch of other courses around breaking unconscious bias, breaking racial bias, so would love for folks to just, um, you know, sign up for them, but also bring us into your workplaces, into your communities. Like that's where change is really going to take place when we do this work together. Um, mm. So it's like long gone are the days of like solo, uh, you know, growth and uh, realization. It has to be done with one another, particularly around these challenges that are so relational. Mm. Thanks, Anu. Yeah, find Be more with Anu. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Aiden. It was and, lovely yeah, this is great. And all the links Thanks for so this will be on 
thestateofmen.com forward slash podcast so you can download everything that's there. Everything a new talked about will be linked up there. Mm-hmm. And you can follow a new at on Instagram at be more with a new. And uh, yeah, just thank thank you so much for a great conversation. Anu. really appreciate you. Um, hope to have you back on in the future. Good luck with all of your endeavors. Thanks everyone for listening. As Mike said, check out all of the show notes uh, and we'll catch and you can follow us on Instagram also at the state of men. Um, and we just appreciate everyone for listening. We love y'all and we'll catch you in the very next episode. <laughs>